Shio, hello everyone. Happy 2019. It's been a minute, but you know, with the holidays, everything gets a little crazy and people are busy doing what we all do on the holidays, eating, visiting with families, and just kind of recharging the batteries. Hopefully uh, you all did the same and are looking forward to a happy and healthy year. I'm really excited. I have a really great guest, Miss Tracy Leost. At the ripe age of 20, she's already accomplished so much. She organized a four-day run in um, her home in Canada to raise awareness around missing and murdered Indigenous women, a really huge issue that's um, becoming more and more in the forefront of popular media and something that really is important to all Indigenous people across North America. Um, so this chat with Tracy, I really, she's so well-spoken and she's such a, um, just such an inspiring person. So I think you'll really enjoy hearing from her about her growing up and her involvement with sport. So many, um, so much involvement in sport and just such an active young lady who I'm really inspired by and look forward to seeing and hearing more from in the future. So enjoy this conversation with Tracy. Thanks. Hi, Tracy. This is Natalie. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I would love to um, just hear about how, like, where you grew up and how you got into sports. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm originally from Treaty One Territory. Um, I was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba, but my community is St. Laurent, Manitoba, so I'm a Métis woman who always grew up in the Métis Nation, which was a very big privilege for me. Yeah. Um, Sports have always been my thing. Um, my struggle was being a Métis person that grew up in Winnipeg and not in my community. So I was even farther removed from my culture, and I was living in a big urban city. Mm. Well, at the time, like Indigenous issues, I feel like were on the uprise, and I always kind of I knew I was Métis, but I had really no idea what that meant, like the history behind it. I was really proud of that, but I also didn't have people to practice that with because um, from K to grade 12, I went to school with like a few indigenous people, um, like a few people of color and the rest were white. Mm. So they weren't, I wasn't surrounded by people that were like me, Mm. but um, that was really different with sports because I started skating at the age of three or four and dancing at three and then I um, played soccer and baseball and then track and field and cross country all came into play so sports have always been big for me Um, but the really important thing about sports was that my identity and like my culture was like never a problem because we were just there to play and have fun so that was a space where I wasn't bullied because of who I was it was a space where I was a member of a team and 
I could play, therefore I was welcome. Yeah. Um, so that's why sports were always a go-to for me because they were a positive space for me, whereas in my day-to-day life, I wasn't as connected to my culture as I would have liked to be, and I also was experiencing bullying at school due to not being like everybody else. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I really, I... I kind of hate how, you know, the States, you know, in the States, it's kind of, we're, we're it feels like we're worlds away from the indigenous um, issues and things like that in Canada. And like, just in the past couple of years, learning about, um, you know, all the different nations and groups up there for people that like aren't as familiar, how would you describe like them, the, your, your people and their presence in, in Canada? Um, person um our presence in Canada is here but it's also something that's really evolving at the moment so Mm. when we talk about indigenous in Canada that encompasses Métis First Nations and Inuit people and um for like my perspective is like being First Nations or being Inuk like that's it's very clear and out there and they're their own things but being Métis at the moment in Canada is still a very like almost gray Mm -hmm. um area it's not black nor white yet and it's hard like people i feel like are still trying to understand what that actually means because on one side of things you have people like me who are like metis and have the ancestry and also belong to a community and are learning the language and practice the culture but then on the other side you have people who kind of claim to like innocence whereas they look at their family tree and they literally say like I have one Indian or I have one native grandma therefore like that's Indian blood in my mixed heritage thinking that makes someone Métis right being Métis isn't about mixed heritage like that's not not what Métis people are and that's not what our culture is about so for me right now it's about like, in Canada, I feel like we're just really trying to distinguish that at the moment, and Métis people are also trying to, like, reclaim their rights and understand what rights we have that are and aren't like other First Nations or Inuit people, um, because, like, we weren't involved with treaties and things like that, so things are really different for us, but yeah. at the same time, a lot of Métis people can just, um, I don't want to say, like, turn the cheek, but, like, for me, like, I appear to be white. So I don't right. experience, like, face-to-face racism unless you actually know I'm Indigenous. Yes. So for Métis people, like, some of them can have it a lot easier than others because um, they don't live in a, in a on a reserve. Or they don't have, like, really, really brown skin. But Métis, like, history has also been really, really difficult. Um, like, we also went to residential school and experienced the 60s, right. whether people choose to recognize that or not. And we also, like, had the road allowance um, part of our history and things like that. So it hasn't been easy, but, um, kind of as a whole, all First Nations making Inuit people kind of, we do have a similar shared history. And I feel like right now in Canada, we're all finding strength together. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds, there's so many, there's so many similarities because I think we have a lot of that here down here with, you know, there's this idea, the popular media ideas, like all natives of on reservations. And it's like, no, there's so many that are in urban areas. And then just Mm -hmm. the idea of like what, 
what and I went through a big thing last year of like what does it even mean to be native and like if if because you know you're taught down here that you're if you're not an enrolled member then you're not and it's it's really oh, wild it's really wild so it's sick mm-hmm. like, but there's oft but I I'm very much I I align with you very much in that like I don't look like you can look at me and like not think that I'm native but like it's a very yeah. weird space to kind of occupy because you can you know you can feel it yourself but then you're not facing that discrimination blatantly as some people might be so it's a really it's a really awkward place to be sometimes but but yeah it's it's like and it's that like you said it's kind of like ever evolving too and um it's 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 so funny because people think that you know I think it's getting there's getting a lot more vocal I mean we just got two women into you know congress down here but like it's and people think that Canada's ahead, but I know you guys, I, I have so many issues too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. A... go ahead, go um, ahead. I feel like, like you, like people do think of Canada as like this progressing country because on one forefront is, they have like, we're doing this, 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 and this, and um, like we're in the top for this and we're in the top in the world for doing this, 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 and this. Right. But then it's almost like all the indigenous or issues are just being like swept under the rug. So like right. currently we have um, a nation on the West Coast who um, is on unceded like traditional territory and the yeah. government's trying to put the pipeline right through there. So mm. they're currently in the middle of protesting and they had a camp up and um, Trudeau's government sent in RCMP officers to raid it yesterday and people got arrested and like that's not making the headlines in our country right Right. now which is I guess what people don't realize is you can choose to not have these conversations and not be involved but then when you have grandchildren you're going to have to explain the fact that like you didn't do anything about this and you chose not to be part of the conversation therefore you're part of the problem so in a lot of aspects um like, some of our issues vary, too. Like, in the states where people are saying, like, gun violence is a huge issue, we don't have. Yeah. I wouldn't, like, we don't have those um, threats and, like, huge crises. But then at the same time, like, people aren't saying, people in Canada don't address missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls as a crisis. Or they don't yeah. address the unequal funding going to communities and things like that. So I feel like if people kind of actually knew what, Indigenous people in Canada were going through, they would actually say, like, wow, Canada's actually, like, not progressing how we think we are. Like, for example, there's a, a, an Indigenous school in Thunder Bay, and what happens is in the north of Ontario, a lot of their communities don't have a high school or they don't have, like, adequate education. Mm-hmm. So high school students, if they want to, like, move forward with their education, they have to move to Thunder Bay, and Thunder Bay is, like, statistically the most racist city in our country, and multiple students from that school have died, and that's also not a national conversation we're having right now, so we're talking about, like, oh, we're really good at, like, we have great healthcare here, but I'm like, well, we're removing children from their communities still, so they can have an education, and they're also dying in our care, kind of thing, so... In a lot of aspects, it, like, may seem so, but I feel like, as a country, we, tr- like, we really try to cover things up, and that's why things seem to be great, but really aren't for everybody. 
Yes. Yeah. One hundred percent. And it's I think, too, it's so hard, too, because you get lumped in like the entire country or um, mm-hmm. when it's different from place to place. But um, I would definitely want to talk to you more about the missing and murdered women and all that. But can you talk a little bit more, too, about like you said you played everything growing up? Did you did your parent were your parents athletes? Like how did you get into like into sports? Was there did you have a favorite? Um, so my parents were both, like, very star athletes in their community, but a key factor is both my parents had to leave their community to, um, pursue other opportunities, so my dad, like, left at 17 to attend a high school in the city of Winnipeg, where he was able to, like, graduate from high school from entry level into machinery, and then moved on to college, and now owns part of Machine Corporation, which that is not at all possible kind of in our community. And also if my mom left shortly after and went into the healthcare field and now works in anesthesiology, and we don't have those opportunities in our community, mm-hmm. but the opportunities I feel like my parents did take on all of the sports things. Yeah. So like having children, I have uh, two siblings and me and my brother um, and my sister are all very like sporty people. Yeah. Um, First, I was, um, I started with skating and dance, and my parents put me in jigging and ballet, and then I pursued jigging and square dancing because I was cultural. Yeah. But I started skating, and my parents put me in ringette because that was a female sport, um, and it was kind of like really, really big when I was young versus, like hockey was huge, but ringette was really new in our community where I lived in Winnipeg. Um, so those were kind of like my two main things, and I, I played ringette for like 16 years, I believe, and I danced for 15 years as well. So, like, those are my main priorities. But then on top of that, I was also playing softball and pursuing track and field and then cross-country, and then I became, like, huge into half marathons and, and long-distance running, which then became an additional priority. Yeah. And then I began, like, high school, and I was playing um, on the high school hockey team and the ringette team, and then I also joined, like, water polo and things like that. So... Sports, I feel like, came very easy to me, and I enjoyed, like, being healthy, but that's also, like, how I learned, like, my values and, like, socializing through sporting teams, um, so they were very much a huge part of my life, and my parents are very supportive of that, because as an Indigenous person, like, I was kept as busy as I could, and had I not been, I probably would have found trouble. Yeah. Um, but in addition to that, I also um, have been fiddling since third grade, and my mom was very persistent on that, A, because it's part of my culture, but B, my mom believed in having balance in my life, and playing an instrument and also doing sports was that balance for me, but um, yeah, my parents were athletes, um, and it's not like I was born and like had to be an athlete, like my brother played hockey for a bit, and like kind of stepped away from that, that wasn't like his passion, he played really liked baseball, and like now my brother's a really great snowboarder, and is pursuing um, like culinary school at the moment is working in one of the best restaurants in Canada so like we all ended up doing really great things with ourselves and our parents were very supportive of the decisions we made whether that be like sports or music or cooking and things like that so I'm very privileged and fortunate to have grown up in a supportive home yeah had I not all of this would have been a lot more difficult for me yeah no, that's that's in, so impressive. That's uh, so much. So there's a couple of things you mentioned though I've never heard of, like jigging, and then you said, what was the other sport you said that I, I it's I don't think it's played much down here in the states. Ringette, ringette, 
Ringgit, yeah. Yeah. So jigging and square dancing is a Métis dance. And it was, like, originally done because when the Indian Act came into place, um, that removed, like, all cultural practices and, like, um, musical instruments and, like, ceremonial things. So we really had, like, nothing cultural to do. So when, like, Métis people were living... um, within, like, their Red River settlements and things like that, there was always, like, gatherings and parties were a big thing. Mm-hmm. And jigging became, like, something you would do in the house. But it was only, like, it was dancing, but only done with your feet. And you would kind of move with your body, but wouldn't touch hands with anybody. So then when, like, priests and ministries would walk by and look in the window, it looked like you were just moving around the house. <laughs> and then when things like that became more accepted, it was moved out of the home and then down on the side of the river. So when fur traders were going by and they saw people doing this dance, it, like, kind of gave them a reason to stop and come in. But, like, jigging has really evolved. It, like, it evolves, like, so you're dancing with your feet with, like, tap shoes that have, like, a double clicker on the bottom. And then now it's done in, like, there's you're in a pair and there's, like, eight of you, and it's, like, a square dance, because you're kind of in a square, and you're doing movements, and, like, you hold hands and do all these spins and stuff, like, it's not traditional like that anymore, yeah. but um, jigging and square dancing is, like, a huge part of, like, Métis, like, dancing, and, like, that's the Métis dance, and then ringa is very similar to hockey, except instead of having the um, blade on the bottom of the stick, it's just, like, a straight, narrow stick with no blade, and instead of using a puck, you use a ring, which is kind of like a donut. <laughs> it's played on ice. And, like, just the rule changes are, like, it's a no-contact sport. You have to pass over the blue lines, can't go to the crease, like, things like that. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's an all-female game. That's... But, um, yeah, that was kind of what I did growing up. That's super interesting. Yeah, I we have like the traditional game of stickball, which is basically like lacrosse, and then um, Cher- in Cherokee, like we had also had women play it at one point, so that was kind of controversial. And but it was it's been really interesting. That's something I've been studying. It's been really interesting. So it, that's that's so fascinating. I love that they did it kind of so it could be kind of hidden too. That's really funny. Yeah. Um, how, and so and when did you start? When did you really get into running? wasn't like serious with it in elementary school but like in elementary like we had these cross-country um like tournaments sort of thing where like all a bunch of schools got together and like you had to run a certain distance so I kind of did it for fun but I ended up being like really really good at it and then in the third grade um my dad was in a really serious motor vehicle accident that left him with traumatic brain damage and he almost died because of those injuries um so like things weren't really looking good so that was a traumatic thing i experienced as a child yeah sorry to hear um, that yeah so just like being in grade three and like being told your dad's dying and like isn't likely to survive his injuries and then having to go to school and like i went to school as like really privileged kids so then not understanding what it's like to be like losing a parent kind of thing and just having, like, my mom have to look after, like, the home and us and also, like, be with my dad kind of thing. Yeah. My dad ended up making a full recovery, which is, like, pretty mirac- miraculous. Oh, that's but, so great to hear. Um, yeah. But, like, what my dad told me during his recovery, because I was struggling, was to just find something positive 
And as my life like progressed, that ended up being running for me because I could do something positive on a sports team, but running for me was like solo. Like I was controlling my body, and it was up to me to like push myself. So it was something that like I was entirely in control of. Mm-hmm. So the more I needed to find something positive, the more I like found running and kind of stuck with it. Yeah. And then like in middle school again, like track and field and cross country, and then I got really serious with it, like in grade eight and then coming into high school in grade nine and then things really took off for me from there yeah yeah so how were you like competing with your school or were you doing more like rec races or both I um competed in track and field and cross country solely with my school like I didn't belong to like a a club sort of thing like outside of school which is a thing here but I didn't never did that um I just, like, I had a really great um, track and field coach at school, and a lot of these things I had taught myself, because prior to taking track and field seriously, I was running half marathons, and I was doing that alone, and I taught myself how to do that, so then I transferred, like, those skills and added the coaching in high school, and then I got really serious with um, the high school team and took, like, more of an elite role with our sports team there, and, like, we got to, I remember being in grade I think it was nine, and we went to Minnesota, and we won, like, uh, Minnesota State Championship in one of their tournaments in, like, a 4 by 4 relay kind of thing. Oh, wow. So I got to do, like, really amazing things with my high school track and yeah, field Yeah, that's awesome. But um, the distance running, I did on my own. I taught myself all of that. I trained by myself. I did the research on my own, and then it started with, like, 5Ks and 10Ks, and then I needed a bigger challenge, and it became half marathons and then that's where the 115 kilometer run for Michigan murdered indigenous women came into play I was um leaning off of a passion I had in order to create awareness for an issue that I felt wasn't being addressed yeah how did that how did that come about can you talk more about that yeah so again this was in high school I had taken my first ever two indigenous studies classes where I had a really incredible teacher and um the few people in my class were indigenous, so there were, like, a few that weren't. So it was a very, like, comfortable at-home feeling in that classroom. Uh-huh. And I had never learned more about my culture and my people than I did in that classroom. Wow. And the major project we had was Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls in Canada. And the point of this project was, like, these women are more than how they died or how they disappeared. And, like, the negative stereotype that surrounds that, the point was, like, these women have a story and a story that deserves to be told. Yeah. So we'd like pretty much just had to search. There isn't really a registry, but like we had to pick one woman who had died or had been missing still an indigenous woman. And we just had to tell her story the way that it should be told. And I picked a woman by the name of Ramona Wilson and it was kind of just super random. Yeah. But, um, like she was a 60s scoop survivor and, um, then ended up being a victim of Robert William Picton, who is the most successful serial killer, and I'm pretty sure all of North America, Canada for sure. Yeah. And he um, preyed upon like really vulnerable um, women in downtown Vancouver's East Side, which is one of the poorest era codes we had in, in Canada. Yeah. And um, pretty much what he would do is he would attract like sex trade workers or street workers and kind of lure them in with like drugs and a place to stay. And then he would, like, kill them, and he lived on a pig farm, and then he, like, scattered their bodies along his pig farm. And it's estimated Mm. that um, 
well, he admitted to wanting to kill an even 50 women, and it's us we killed, like, 49 women, and Ramona was one of those victims, so wow. and this was all, like, very new to me, so I was not only, like, embarrassed and ashamed, but I was amazed by the fact that, like, one person could be capable of so much, and I had never heard about it. Like, yeah. no one in my school or, or anyone around me was ever talking about him or, like, what was going on, so that was the real shock for me was why... Do we have like more than 4,000 missing and indigenous women and girls in Canada and we're not having a serious conversation about it? Yeah. And even to like portray that even more as like a really regular thing for my friends and family was like you would have dinner in your kitchen and like TV would be on in the background with the news and literally like once you started paying attention like every day or every second day there was another news announcement like someone's missing or her body had been found and it was an indigenous woman but it was like so normalized like you just had yeah. family dinner like oh another one oh another one wow. oh another one and no one was really stopping to say like this is actually an issue and like a where are these women going but b why aren't we doing anything about it yeah so i kept um like bringing these concerns to this classroom and eventually my teacher just told me like Tracy, you clearly have the voice to bring attention to this issue because I had talked about it nonstop for like a year. And he said, I also have the ability to do something really positive. So that was kind of the push I needed. And yeah. I decided I was going to somehow like incorporate my passion of running and uh, bring attention to this issue. And I ended up being running from my community to Winnipeg where we have like a monument for MMIW. And that was important for me because that route reflects, like, who I am as a person. And if I'm ever to become one of these statistics, like, that really represents me, my identity. And that's how the MYW Journey of Hope came to be. Yeah. And so it ended up being, like, over 100K, right? Yeah. So 115 kilometers, which is, I think, 70-something miles. Yeah. And how much more? Exactly sure. And you did that over just like a couple of days, right? Yeah, 115 kilometers in four days. Yeah how how did you like what were how what was your like distance per day like did you do more certain days or kind of even it out? Yeah, it varied. So the first two days I did like the most. Yeah. Um, the first two days I ran somewhere like 30k or something close to that. And then the third day I was like the longest distance. Um, I can't even remember. I yeah. was like, again, 30 or 40 or something like that. And then the second day was like a 26K day, which as a half marathon was like pretty normal. Yeah. Um, and then the fourth day was really a simple running from my house to, it's called the Forks is where that monument is. And that was like 10 or 12K from my house. Yeah. And that day we had like 13 people with us. So the first two days are the longest because also, um, like my, to get from my community to Winnipeg is like, you have to take a highway. So the first two days was about like getting us from my community to the end of that highway and like back into the city. And then the second, the last two days were about, um, like now running in the city, but getting myself to the end point. So I did it, um, like plan each day, like how far I wanted to run. I just knew that like as days went on this would get a lot harder so I did the best I could the first two days of going as long as I possibly could which were also like really tough days for my body and then 
the third and fourth day. The third day was a big struggle for me, but I was also like finally reached like the outskirts of Winnipeg and things like that. So just knowing you're that much closer got easier for me. Yeah. But yeah, it was like really, really hot. We didn't have like any wind or any rain or a breeze or anything. So it was yeah. really hot. And the highway, this highway is one of our most dangerous highways in the province of Manitoba. Um, so like that's another like factor to think about is like running on the shoulder of a really dangerous highway and just like running for that right. distance takes a really big toll on your body. Yeah. So it was a big challenge, like not only physically, but like mentally and emotionally to try and kind of keep yourself up with what you're doing. Because a lot of times, like when you're doing something challenging or you're at the gym and your brain tells you like, give up, give up, like that voice is telling you to just go home. Well, yeah. that didn't just go away. Like for four days, I was fighting the fact that I wanted to do really something really great sort of conversation that needed to, we needed to be having. But at the same time, like, there was that voice in my head that was constantly saying, like, this is hard and you should stop. Um, but I was really lucky. My brother um, decided that he was going to bike the whole way with me so that I oh, wouldn't wow. have to be alone. Yeah, I was wondering if you and had, like, then, someone following you or... Yeah, so I had a guide car in front of me. So my parents and my grandparents and, like, my family were really big um, and helpful for this. So there's always a car in front of me and always a car behind me. So that vehicles went either way, kind of had a heads up already. And then it was, like, me and then my brother biked behind me. He even ran for some of it. And then one of my cousins, too, just said, like, I'm going to bike with you as far as I can. So we kind of just bought, like, a few kilometers, like, the first day or or something like that, but Jeffrey ended up also biking the whole way, so there was never a moment I was by myself, and so the three days, it was just, like, the three of us in the vehicles, and then the last day, we had um, two vehicles, ten bikers, and three runners, so that was a really special day. Yeah. Um, he was never alone. I had really great support from my family and community. Um, my... Like, as in community, I mean, like, my Winnipeg, I'm not, sorry, my, like, traditional community was very, very supportive. Right. My, another challenge I had was having, like, my, some of my friends and, like, people I went to school with, like, take me seriously because being white people of privilege, a lot of them didn't understand how important this was. Like, I specifically remember one person telling me to make a change for something that actually matters and educate myself about something that actually that's actually important. So it was like constantly being told like, oh, running 115 kilometers like isn't going to get you anywhere. Like this is dumb. A lot of it too was like these women are like asking for this to happen to them. What? So I hate. Really, like really horrible things. But it yeah. was difficult to like not have that support but then also like try and send a positive message to them which ended up happening because a lot of people I think were also waiting like I said I was going to do this, but I don't think a lot of people actually thought I really was serious about it. So once, like, I began this run, a lot of that support started coming in. Yeah. But, like, the thing I like to highlight is that my community has always, always been supportive of me. And then eventually the run became, first it was a provincial conversation that I had the privilege of starting, and then it became national, and then it started going global and things like that. So, like, what started as a small idea to kind of start a conversation, like, really actually did start a conversation, which was my goal. I just didn't think it would become that big. Yeah. No, that's amazing. That's so crazy to hear that people would say that kind of thing. And then mm-hmm. did, did people stop along the way when you were running, trying to figure out what was going on? Um, yeah, a lot of people, 
a lot of the vehicles, some kept driving. Um, people would, like, honk and support, but obviously, like, my community traveled that highway. Mm. So, like, they would stop and, like, donate or, uh, like, people, because I was raising money, too. So yeah. they were either, like, just coming in to, like, take a picture or take a picture with me, just, like, give me some support. But they also, some of them would donate money. Some people donated, like, water and things like that. So that we had the things we needed. And then also, the closer I got to Winnipeg, my friends and people there that kind of knew what I was doing, they would be driving and see me and, like, honk and things like that. So it was really nice, too, that, like, eventually it made on the news. So the, the days that I was running in the city, like, people actually knew what was happening. So, like, that was a lot of encouragement. I think my favorite moment, though, of people stopping was the final day. We got the worst rainstorm of the summer. Oh. Like, it absolutely poured on us. And the water oh. was, like, pelts of water that was, like, not liquid, but not hail either. Like, it was hard and it hurt. Yeah. And where we had to run by was um, the north end of Winnipeg, which is known to be a very poor and struggling area of our city. And it's... Um, where you'll also find, like, where homeless people typically, um, go. So we were running on the road because, um, we couldn't be on the sidewalk. There's too many of us. And these homeless people were, like, taking shelter on the side of the street under, like, store signs. And, um, as I was running by, like, a lot of them stopped us to ask what we were doing. Some would walk with us. Some joined in. And what was really special to me was a lot of the homeless people dug the little change they had out of their pockets to donate to my cause. And that was significant to me because before I started running, I reached out to, like, major corporations in Winnipeg asking for their support, and they all declined. So it was really special that people who had everything couldn't give anything, but the people who had nothing gave everything they had. Yeah. So that was... um, like a shocking moment for me but that's definitely my favorite part of the run that's amazing wow is it something that you like something you you would do again is it something maybe you could make it like an annual kind of thing do you think um so this has been like three years ago and I haven't done it since I haven't been I haven't like ran competitively either since because it really did take a toll on my body Mm. I would totally do something like this again I think I would just, like, prepare my body for it a little bit more because obviously yeah. running that is really extreme. But if, like, someone reached out to me and said, like, I want to do this, can you do it with me? Like, I'd be there. Yeah. So, especially, like, that was three years ago and that's kept me busy for a long time. Um, and I've got to do some really amazing things since and I'm still doing some great things. Yeah. But especially with this um, pipeline and unseized territory, um, the RCMP raising, uh, rating that community right now, that's raising, it's pretty much starting a movement in our country right now. Mm-hmm. And as you continue to experience things like that, kind of like your anger grows more. So that run bloomed out of anger I had at that point. So for me right now, it's about like getting myself to that point again, where like enough is enough. And then I choose to do something, um, I don't, extreme, little, big, whatever it is. Yeah. To, to help so like at the moment it's not an annual run I like I've thought of doing it but to like for myself to have to take like four or five days off work because I have to work in the summer and then for like family and friends to have to take off work to help me and and things like that like it I'm trying to think of others at the same time and it's not 
the most logical thing I could do at the moment. I think a lot of people probably think I can't run 115 kilometers again, but <sighs> if someone challenged me, I'd probably do it again. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I could see yeah. it becoming kind of like a more like an international thing where people across the con- across mm-hmm. to the countries kind of all try to run for, you know, whatever amount. That's, yeah. So what are you focused on now? Like, what are, are you, you're in school, right? Yeah, so I'm in my third year of social work, and wow. a lot of that is just, like, trying to get my education. Mm-hmm. But being an Indigenous student, getting an education is really difficult. So um, one of the things I've had the privilege of being a part of is working with Inspire in Canada, and they do a lot of great things for Indigenous education. But one of their significant things is every year they have the Inspired Awards, which honors like 12 different categories of like culture and arts and education. And then they have three categories for Métis and uh, First Nations youth. Mm-hmm. And this award is like the most prestigious and the highest honor bestowed upon Indigenous people. So I received that last year in the Métis youth category. So over the past year, I've also been, like, hand-in-hand with inspired fighting and working towards, like, Indigenous education. So that's not a, like, I've been taking my experience and talking about that on a national platform and meeting with government, the government and ministers, and we released a report. And a lot of that is also just traveling to communities and sharing my story. Yeah. So, like, I've constantly been traveling, and I'm always doing something. So the report was really huge, and then traveling for like speaking events and just being a motivational speaker and sharing my story in communities to inspire Indigenous youth is a major thing that I'm doing at the moment. But arguably, like, the most important to me at the moment is um, volunteering. So yeah. I coach a hockey league in Regina in the winter that has just started up again. Yeah. And it's for the whole like, component of it is that everyone plays. So it removes every financial barrier that's attached to sports. And they have a variety of different leagues. And I coached the hockey league for a few years. And I've also become involved with the football league. But with hockey, um, you get all the equipment for free. Like there's no um, registry fees. It's outside. Um, There's like if you need a taxi ride there, like that's available. It's like really anything we can do so that your child can play, we do. So it's more than just coaching, it's about mentoring, and a lot of the kids that come through our doors are Indigenous, and a lot of them are also in care. So as like a social work student and as an Indigenous person, and someone with like a really, really big heart, um, this is like my favorite part of the whole year is coaching these kids and spending just a few hours with them every week, giving them a safe and positive space to be in. And um, I know it's meant a lot to my kids, and my kids... Um, every once in a while kind of say, tell you like how much you mean to them and things like that and how much this week means to them. Yeah. So, um, like, yeah, every week I just dedicate a few hours to going out there coaching, mentoring, like just being in a positive space with these kids and being kind of someone they can count on. I think one of the most notable things is um, just like asking, tying their skates and saying like, how was your day today? Because for some, they haven't been asked that ever or like that day. I remember asking one kid, how he was doing because he was clearly not having a good day and he was kind of taken back by it. So I asked again, and yeah. he replied saying, like, no, sorry, I heard you. No one just ever asked me that before. So uh, you have kids who are coming through your door who wow. have never been um, have never been told, like, 
you've done a really good job. They've never been asked, like, how are you doing? Some of them, like, really have no, have never been told they're capable of achieving anything. Um, A lot of them come from really traumatic situations. They all have different challenges they're facing in their everyday life. So that's one of the big things I do right now. I also on the weekends try and volunteer with a patrol we have in Winnipeg, uh, sorry, in Regina. And on the weekends, we just walk the streets in the evening, um, help whoever they can help, just be like a safe um, person in the neighborhood that's constantly walking around, like checking in on people. And then in addition to that, one of the huge things we do is pick up drug paraphernalia. So right now, like, meth is a really, really big issue in Canada. In every province and city, it's becoming a huge issue. Yeah. So a lot of the times, we're just picking up needles so that kids aren't being poked. But um, that's what I'm doing right now. Um, A big thing, though, is getting my education and just being a role model to other Indigenous youth, whether that be what I've done or as a university student, um, things like that. Yeah, that's so amazing. Wow. And you're you're not even like what? You're like 20 years old, right? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You're such an inspiration. That's amazing. I'm so glad. I actually – so I attended a conference in Vancouver – and I okay. met another girl and we both were working, we were doing kind of like documentary film as a part of our research. And I was telling her okay. about like how I've started a podcast and she mentioned you and I hadn't heard of you. So I was so glad that she, she did. And I'm doing my dissertation right now on how native athletes give back to their communities. And I kind of yeah. argue that it's kind of, there's this inherent sense of, you know, giving back and community and kind of the circle within native and indigenous communities that really inspire, yeah. it really takes, it's so much more than just like your typical, you know, volunteering or, um, you know, it's such mm-hmm. giving back means so much more. And so I was wondering what, when you think of giving back and like, what, what about it to you really inspires you to do what you do? And, um, or why would you say it's so important to you? I think it's important to me because there was, like, some Indigenous athletes when I was younger. Like, I'm specifically going to say, like, Jordan Tutu, who was the first Inuit hockey player in the NHL. We had, like, Theo Fleury, who was Métis. He was also a hockey player in the NHL. But there wasn't, like, there wasn't a lot for Indigenous people to look up through. And, like, we truly, like, we do have trailblazer people. But it's almost like, and it was, like, even worse before I was born, that, like, being Indigenous was not a good thing. And that's, like, obviously something that's changing now, but because of that and because Indigenous people were never thought of to be or could be like anybody else, they weren't looked at the same way. And because things had been so difficult and Indigenous people had experienced so much trauma, obviously they're not all in the same positions as everybody else and they're not achieving or they're not being the first this or the first that. Indigenous people do have that, but... We haven't had it as easy. So for me, I don't really remember having major Indigenous role models to look up to. And that was a problem because now, like, what about people in Indigenous communities? Like, who do they have to look up to? So for me, it's just about being a positive person that Indigenous people can look to regardless of what they're going through and know that, like, they can get through it and that their dreams are possible because... Everyone told me that mine weren't, and then I ended up leading a global conversation about violence against women. So that just, like, it goes to show that I feel like what I've done is just an example, and it's not to put pressure on anybody. It's more of a, like, if I did this, then you can truly do anything. Right. And another thing, I, like, I 
about is like my partner, for example, he played hockey in the Western Hockey League, which is like a semi-professional hockey league here in Canada. And there's actually like a few um, teams in like Seattle and Portland and Everett and things like that. Yeah. But he comes from a reserve and he hasn't had an easy upbringing and has been a guy that has struggled as an indigenous person to be recognized within hockey and to be treated like everybody else. And he's experienced the racism and all of those things. And he comes from one of the largest reserves in Canada. And I don't think there's a kid in that community that does not look up to Lyndon as like their absolute hero for like making something of himself and coming from a reserve and then making it in this hockey league and being an assistant captain on, on his team. So like I surround myself with people like that and I see the things that they're doing and like after every game they have an autograph alley and he's constantly there like signing autographs and volunteering on his own time and then with his team not only because like it makes you feel good but our people need that like it's obvious that our youth need somebody to look up to and we need to start breaking the cycles that our people are in and without role models I don't think we can do that and for me it's that if you don't have a role model at home then I would like love to be a role model and whether that be they have my phone number and can call me or look up to me on social media or whatever it may be. I just want to be a person that people can look look up to and whether they strive to be like me or if I'm a person that just inspires them. It's just really about I want these people to be okay and to realize that life isn't just about being in your community and that you're more than what people think you are because what people think of us is really really hard to hear and I feel like a lot of that time too once you hear it for so long you start to believe it and I don't want our kids to believe that yeah. I don't want our kids to continue to have the highest rates of kids in care and then have the highest rates of people in prison like we're we can do more than that and I'm ready to be a person that can help people achieve that and for me that's been through sharing my story volunteering through giving back and especially through sport because for me those go hand in hand yeah, and I think too it's like not so much giving someone like an idol, like someone they like, like kind of more celebrity, but mm-hmm. someone that's more relatable and that's someone that's more yeah. like not, you don't have to be a superstar, you know, or anything like that. But also, mm-hmm. I think sport is just such a great avenue because, like you said, you can kind of you're kind of equal on the field, you know, and, um, it provide, it can provide so many opportunities. It's, you know, unfortunately sometimes education isn't seen as like a cool thing. And well, and for us in native communities, it's, you know, it's a, it's called, it's a colonizing, it's a, it's a bad, you know, a bad thing. So education isn't necessarily seen as something that's a positive. So what sport is something that can lift us up. It can, it can help us, you know, and it can help, you know, even carry on our traditions. So it's such a better avenue. So I think that's really, really great. I'm so excited to have this, be able to connect with you. And I can't, I can't even mm-hmm. imagine what you're going to do. You're, you're only 20 You're you've got so much, um, so much <laughs> time ahead of you. So I'm really excited. And if there's anything I can do for you, let me know. I, um, really excited to get this out there. Cause I think, 
it's becoming a lot better with like the com- the connection between the indigenous people in the Canada and the in the U.S. But there still are a lot of people who, yeah. And I think we can only help each other really because it's yeah. so many similar Definitely. experiences, and um, I think we can really become really great allies. So um, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it, and I'll definitely I'll let you know. Um, when everything gets posted and it'll probably be later tonight or tomorrow, but I really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you for your time um, and for allowing me to be part of this. I really appreciate it. And I'm glad we finally connected. You have my number, I have yours. So if there's anything that I can do or help you with or whatever that may be, please let me know because I would love to. Yeah. I would love to do some kind of like documentary project on missing and murdered indigenous women and like sports Mm -hmm. and some kind of something, something like that. So we'll definitely stay connected. Perfect. I'm really excited. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much, Tracy. Have a great rest of your day. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Thank you too. It was great talking to you. You too. Talk soon. Thanks. Bye. Fast, 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 fast,